Welcome back to Highly Respected. I'm your host, Scott and today we're going to have another incredible episode, just like always, so hopefully you sit back and enjoy. And today, this will be a first. Every topic we discuss will be based on a Cottonly question. A few of the Cottonly questions were based on topics that I was already going to discuss, but I'll bring them up anyway, because that's what we do here on Highly Respected, is that we bring up the Cottonly questions, no matter if I was already planning on talking about it without the Cottonly question. But, so this is the first, they're getting so good that they're dominating our entire podcast. So that is great. We love our Cottonly, and we hope more of you join in the years to come, or the days to come, in the future. So, uh, for the first thing, or the first topic, as I need to give my pitch on Cottonly questions. As a reminder, you too can get the power to ask me questions or suggest guests and topics if you sign up for the Cottonly option at Highly Respected Substack. And that's at highlyrespected.substack.com. And make sure to sign up for the IQ supplements if you haven't already. And this first question comes from K Max. K Max was wanting to get my opinion about what's going on in Ireland. And is there more of a nationalism happening in Europe first compared to America? Are people finally becoming immune to, to what the media calls far right? And so that is what we're going to discuss. And that was what I was already going to discuss. But it's not just Ireland. There's also the Dutch elections where the Nationalist Party, Geert Wilders Party for Freedom did well. So there's a lot to discuss there. But we'll first go to Ireland and what's happening in that country and a lot of people have noticed i've been very hard on the irish on irish nationalism is that irish nationalism if you look at Sinn fein which still define themselves as irish nationalists it's extremely left-wing they're always you know pro-immigrant uh pro-lgbt pro every standard left-wing issue and that's Sinn fein now Sinn fein has always been on the left uh, you can call, you can say, looking at a hundred years ago, their politicians were a bit different, but Sinn Fein for modern history has always been like this. And you know, they express sympathy and solidarity with uh, the civil rights movement and the Black Panthers and Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, and those times. And they've still, and they're very strong on Black Lives Matter stuff that they've always done. But Sinn Fein is not all Irish people, but they are one of the most powerful parties in Ireland and in Northern Ireland as well. They're not the, you know, the prime minister does not come from Sinn Féin, however. The prime minister, Leo Varadkar, who is actually Indian, comes from Fine Gael, which I'm uh, not great with all the Irish pronunciations, but I'm going to try here. So I'm sure that there's going to be some people who are going to be upset about that. But Fine Gael is technically the center-right party. Um, you could call them the conservative party. Um, in Ireland, uh, but they are obviously uh, not very right-wing in the response to this incident. So to go back to what the incident that has caused all this is that a man who is likely to believe uh, a migrant, even though they say he's lived in Ireland for 20 years, he's Irish, he's just as we are Irish, he's just as Irish as we could be. And he's, I think, a North African heritage, and he stabbed a bunch of kids, you know, having a mental episode and this obviously pissed people off because they've been having a lot of migrant crime. There's also been a lot of battle over housing and, and public services that the migrants have been taking from the native Irish and the native Irish have had enough. And there's been riots and, and strong protests throughout the year over migrants in Ireland, which there's not been much of a right wing nationalist movement in Ireland are 
as much opposition towards immigration as in the rest of Europe up until very recently. But now we're be see, beginning to see this in Ireland with you know people not even being organized by a political party or any movement. They're just taking the streets and their neighbors have the same opinion on this matter and they are wanting to vent their frustration. And in the riots, you know, they did target some of the hotels that are housing migrants. They also looted, which <laughs> I don't think we can uh, defend looting uh, in this. Uh, in this, But as uh, they always say, riots are the language of the unheard. So they were just making their voices heard through rioting and through aggressive demonstrations. And this took Ireland by force when this happened. And the entire political establishment is not saying that these guys have a point of view or they, they have um, righteous grievances in the same way that our politicians were saying about Black Lives Matter when they were writing. When they were writing, they're like, oh, these people are, you know, they're taking it a little bit too far. But what they're ultimately protesting against, they are totally justified in their protests and demonstrations. We just want them to be more peaceful. Here in Ireland... It's not just the violence, it's the fact that they're protesting in and of itself. What they're protesting for, the entire political establishment is condemning them for as evil and, and monstrous for doing this. And Varadkar is leading the charge against this. He immediately condemned this, saying that Ireland has no place for racism and that we're that Ireland is a nation of immigrants, which he was saying, which uh, uh, <laughs> considering that Irish identity, which I've always, you know, uh, criticized has always been built on uh, opposition to migrants from England. <laughs> you know, the uh, I guess the first migrants would have been the Anglos uh, coming over and conquering the country, uh, which Ireland is not very fond of. You know, I guess uh, Cromwell is now an uh, immigrant too, and Drogheda was just a case of the bigoted Irish not being very welcoming towards the English. Uh, that could be a new way to spend Irish identity, but they're like saying it's a nation of immigrants. It's like uh, pretty much all of its immigration history was extremely violent and unwelcome, you know, from the Vikings to the Anglo-Saxons and now to uh, Africans who are coming and, you know, stabbing people on the street. You know, it's not been very welcome in Ireland. So it's like saying it's a nation of immigrants is ridiculous. But it is funny how now this nation of immigrants rhetoric, which was first popularized in America, largely by John F. Kennedy in his book uh, that was helped produce with the ADL in the late 50s, a nation of immigrants, you know, now that's like gone over to Europe where it makes absolutely no sense. Like saying Ireland is a nation of immigrants is just completely preposterous. <laughs> it's, and nor have they been successful with immigration, but they do that with every country. You know, they'll say like France is a nation of immigrants. You know, you'd have to go to the dark ages to find their immigration. And th once again, their immigration was not very peaceful and, and, and enriching. You know, it was uh, barbarians streaming over into Gaul and raping and pillaging. And also they had Vikings coming over and raping and pillaging. Uh, you know, England, you could say, has a history of immigration because the Anglo-Saxons had settlement. But that was also extremely violent process as well. And obviously, you know, they had Viking invasion not very pleasant. Um, and most of this stuff happened in the Dark Ages. The last time that they were having the mass migration would have been at that time. And it was extremely violent, usually unwelcome for the people already living in these lands. But now they're just turned it into, oh, we've always been welcoming <laughs> to people wanting to rape and pillage our lands, you know. 
And it just makes absolutely no sense. You know, there is a point to saying, you know, the way the nation of immigrants is used for American propaganda or the propaganda of the liberal regime isn't correct. But we are a nation of settlers. You know, we did recently come over from Europe. We came, we settled the land, tamed the wilderness, and then we invited other Europeans to come over as long as they assimilated to our ways and fit into the mainstream of America. And other rules and orders. And then we eventually said that there were too many of them and they weren't adopting to our ways and they were threatening the settler stock. And we put severe restrictions on them up until after the Cold War, where we decided we wanted to be an experimental proposition nation and nation immigrants rhetoric took over. So now something that is very American that makes absolutely no sense in the context of Europe and you know, they can't even point to peaceful immigration in their part. I mean, I guess like the Huguenots moving to England and, and parts of Germany uh, during their religious prosecution in trance. That's like it. But the Huguenots were not like a, a huge part of the population in either England or Germany. Um, so it hasn't had that much experience with mass migration up until very recently. Well, mass migration from Europe of a particular stocks from Europe and in particular ways from Europe was impactful for American history, but we had controls over it and we had preferences for who should come and we didn't imagine the entire world coming to our country. But, you know, there is some uh, evidence you can support this theory, even the way the, that it's used is incorrect. But in Europe, it makes absolutely no sense. But it's, a, it's an American influence that, that Varadkar wants to impose. And apparently a number of Irish believe it because the entire Irish political establishment is aligning with Varadkar. The m major figure who is on the side of the protesters, maybe possibly the only one, is Conor McGregor, obviously the famous MMA fighter, arguably the most famous MMA fighter in the world, who has you know been all over the place politically in the past. I mean, he was critical of Trump. He said some left-wing things in the past. And now he's sounding like uh, a total nationalist. And I think a lot of his tweets were very good. You know, he's speaking in his own, um, I guess you could call it Irish wigger way. I mean, he is like a street kid. He is, he is a hooligan, um, both in the pro and, and negative, or in the negative way of saying this. I mean, this is a guy who's, career is based around beating people up he's obviously gonna be um you know a little who kind of a hoodlum but it happens you know it's not the it's how he is it's how a sport requires him to be and that's how he is he's maybe not the most <laughs> uh have the best impulse control but you know it's not surprising that someone like that would be that but his tweets on this were actually pretty astute because it was like saying you know it's like saying it in his own language you know uh you know, his goofy uh, Irish wigger language, you could say, you know, and the way he's talking. But he was like saying, it's like, look, all these migrants are coming here. We didn't vote for this. They're taking our stuff without our permission. This should go to us, not them. We need to put Irish first, Ireland first. And this is ridiculous how our political establishment is responding to this, where they're condemning these protesters and rioters more than they are the migrant criminals. And He's pretty much the only public figure in Irish society who is taking up the cause of the street protesters and the ones opposed to immigration. It's a very surprising choice for this. But I think he represents 
a lot of that crowd that was rioting because, you know, if he was not a world famous MMA fighter, he would be joining the rioters. Um, maybe if he was in Dublin at the time, he would have been joining the rioters. Uh, I don't know. He could be in Dublin, but, you know, maybe his manager was like, please do not go out and ride <laughs> or something. But he, if he wasn't a world famous person, he would likely be joining them. And that's his crowd. That's his people. And, you know, otherwise these people probably wouldn't have been considered far right or nationalists in the rest of the European sense. But due to the fact that they now have this recent imposition of mass immigration in the country, they are taking they're really pissed off and they're taking to the streets. And you have to wonder, it's like, why was Ireland the first place or one of the places to do this where they've had, you know, a migrant stabbing and then the people riot? Because this happens throughout Europe. Now, there's been a couple cases in the rest of Europe where people have done this, like in Chemnitz and other parts of Eastern Germany. There have been people who have taken to the streets, not quite large scale, not quite uh, to the extent of it is in Ireland, uh, last week, but they have taken the streets and they have tried to find migrants and confront them. It's been a little bit more aggressive than elsewhere. In the UK, they had, well, I think it was either last year or earlier this year, where they were aggressively protesting migrant housing in their communities and, you know, getting a little rambunctious and a little bit and you could claim it was a riot. So they've and they've done this in the UK, and they especially did this in Germany during unification in the early '90s, as that East Germany had a lot of violence towards migrants, and you know they were burning migrant housing. You know there were all these skinheads walking the streets, like attacking migrants all the time, and there was this because you know East Germans they weren't experiencing mass migration to the extent that West Germans were. And now they were really upset about this because, you know, East Germans were poor, much poorer than the rest of Western Europe, being a Warsaw Pact country. And now they were experiencing in the West and they were seeing these migrants take the public services that they were expecting. And they were really pissed off about it. And they took their frustration out and they had this aggressive attitude towards it. You haven't really seen that as much in modern Germany, but it still happens. It still flares up, just not to the extent of Ireland. So you have to ask, like, well, why is Ireland having it bigger, more aggressive than elsewhere? And so there's a couple of reasons why. One, I was going to say that Ireland is poorer than Western Europe, but actually it's average, you know, median income is actually pretty good. Maybe just because there's a lot of wealth disparity or that, but you really can't say with poverty. But I think it's that there is a still extremely strong urban working class that is getting pushed out by the migrants in a similar way that what was happening in the 60s with integration in the north is that these white ethnics and i think this is a good similarity with the irish is that a lot of these people who are in dublin and you know working class areas they've been voting for the left all their lives and generally if they say their politics they would be on the left but when they have a new force that's coming in that they haven't experienced before and they're taking out of their houses, they're completely changing their neighborhoods, they're making them a lot less safe. These are outsiders that are completely different from the rest, from how they are and their friends and family are. And they are attacking their kids and, and making their schools unsafe. And there's lots of attacks on them at school. They get very mad. And this is an urban working class. So they're, you know, this is the class that produced Conor McGregor. And they're more uh, violent and aggressive than, say, 
the middle class, the suburban middle class. And so if they have a problem like this, they're going to, you know, turn to violence, much more so than others who only experience this distantly or they feel that they can move. And so this is very similar when what's happening with integration in the North, is that these areas that were voting heavily Democrat for years and years, even many of those people felt that these laws against segregation and Civil Rights Act, Voting Rights Act, were great and this was only going to affect the South. And then when they realized it was going to affect them as well, they turned us having very aggressive demonstrations where, you know, when Martin Luther King was protesting in Chicago in 65, he said he had never experienced so much hate as he did from the Chicago ethnic communities where they're just like pelting him, him and his marchers with rocks and, you know, really trying to go after him and, and fight them. And there was also the fighting over busing, especially in Boston. And that area, you know, was voting, you know, solid Democratic voting area. And they were livid that their kids were being bused to black schools and blacks were being bused to their schools. And so they turned to uh, riots. So it's, and so you could see a very similar to something that is happening with Ireland is that these people, you know, they're not on the same wavelength as, say, National Rally in France or Alternative for, Deu Alternative for Deutschland, Alternative for Germany, we're going to call it Alternative for Germany, the AFD in Germany, but, and, you know, they vote for the left-wing parties, but when they have something new and different and changing their lives in the same way that integration was something new and different and bad, changing the lives for the white ethnic communities in the North in the 60s, they uh, get really upset about it. And immigration, mass immigration for Ireland is something very new. You know, just 10, 15 years ago, it was like 90% Irish white. Today, it's under 80% Irish white. Still very white. It's still almost 90% white. Um, you know, there's different because they've been having a lot of European immigrants, both guest workers, a ton of Ukrainians coming in. And they're nearly 10% of the population now. And so it's still a very white country. But now they have a new element that wasn't there in 15 or 10 years ago. And it wasn't as present and it wasn't just as massive of a surge. And the massive surge of migrants is coming more to Ireland in part because a lot of Europe is after 2015. It's like, we don't want to take any of these more of these migrants. But Ireland is like, we'll take them. We'll bring them in. Like, come on in, migrants. Now, some of the migrants, a lot of them, especially in recent years, have been Ukrainians, which I don't think those are the ones causing all the problems and the Irish are really upset about. But it's also been the non-Western, non-European migrants that they've also been accepting and coming in due to the left-wing government. And even though they have a center-right government, that center-right government is <laughs> possibly to the left of the Democrats or possibly or at least on the same page as Joe Biden. And so this is uh, something that they don't have the, quite the experience with that Britain, France, Germany, Netherlands, and elsewhere. And, you know, they've situated them around. They've tried to segregate these, these communities. A lot of them, you know, there's very much a lot of hostility towards them, but they've been experiencing this for at least 50 years. And I think you could see this as a parallel with East Germany, is that in East Germany... They, these, uh, well, East Germans hadn't really been experiencing mass immigration to the level that West Germany has. And then when they started experiencing with during unification, they got really upset about it. And they 
operated in the same way that we're seeing in Ireland right now. And a clear difference between Ireland and the rest of Europe is that there's not a party that represents these immigration skeptical views and these nationalist views. They do have parties. I mean, they do have the National Party of Ireland, which doesn't have any representation. It hasn't earned 1% in any of the elections. It has a lot of internal problems. It's One of its uh, past leaders was fired, and he then uh, allegedly stole the party's gold. Um, it's very much in the same way that you see with like the far right in America and these like bizarre personality disputes and these uh, hilarious uh, shenanigans happening. And they haven't been really able to get much election representation. That could obviously change. Maybe the protest helps them to go from under 1% to 5% of some sort. Maybe that could happen. Um, I don't know if the party really has a... The party obviously has a lot of internal divisions right now. It doesn't quite have its shit together. It could be on the track to having more of its shit together, but it's not on the quite um, professional scale as you would think in some of these other parties. And it's uh, generally been ignored. It's not some party that they've really taken uh, very seriously in Ireland. Um, and but there's been countries like this. I mean, Germany for a long time before the AFD had, you know, they had the MPD, the National Democratic Party, which uh, always had some uh, questionable optics going in, always had, you know, um, strong connections with the legitimately neo-Nazi um, element in Germany. You know, they always had skinheads there. They'd always have like a guy... Uh, doing like a Roman salute or having a bad optics tattoo. And they're like, uh, you know, they didn't do a very good job of trying to hide um, their uh, true beliefs. And there was a ton of federal informants in the in the party who were ensuring that they were promoting as worse optics as possible. Uh, they, but the MPD, you know, they were sometimes getting close to 5%. There was always this fear that they would get into the Bundestag. And they did get into some of the local uh, state parliaments and elsewhere, but they never really quite surpassed, I think, 3% or 4 I think that was like the highest they ever got was in the 3% or some sort. They generally got more than 1%. Now they're getting hardly, they're getting zero votes because AFD, all their supporters who are voting for the MPD just because they were the only nationalist party that was strongly anti-immigration. They're now those people are now voting AFD, and AFD is now winning over a ton of new voters. I mean, AFD is now in polling, you know, in at twenty percent. So some things can happen, but there isn't much representation. And another difference is that in a lot of these places, the center right has parties has anti-immigration elements. In Germany, the Christian Democratic Union was largely pretty strict on immigration up until Merkel welcomed in a million people in 2015. And, but that was very divisive in her own party. And the current leader of CDU, Mertz, Mertz is, is an immigration skeptic, wants immigration restriction. Uh, the left-wing party, the left-wing coalition in power, obviously is very pro-immigration, but they're even having to respond to their people because they know how unpopular immigration is. They know that this is the issue driving a lot of a ton of AFD support, and they realize they have to, they can't be, you know, welcoming in the entire world because this is going to lead to the far right gaining power. 
And this is even in the case in, in France, where the center-right party, which has gone by a ton of different names, even in my lifetime, has generally been more anti-immigration than the left-wing party. Same with the Tories, even though the Tories don't get anything done on immigration, but the Tories have campaigned and you know, on restricting immigration, but they have not been able to do that. A large part, some of that is not quite their own fault. I, you, they should still be blamed. But another thing in Europe is that these countries really don't have as much sovereignty as America does in order to do things. Like the only reason that in America we're not deporting every illegal alien is because we choose not to. But we could if we wanted to. But in Europe, due to the unique system they have where... These courts can overrule deportations, not just their own courts, which is happening in Britain, but also the European Court of Human Rights. Even though Britain left the EU, they're still dictated by the European Court of Human Rights. Also, these countries don't really have the pressure to force these African countries and elsewhere in these Arab countries to take back these migrants in the way that America can with Latin American countries. When Trump was in office, and some of these Latin American countries were skeptical about taking them. He's like, we're going to cut off foreign aid unless you take these migrants. And they're like, oh, OK, we'll take them back. Europe doesn't quite have that power, especially with the North African countries. And they have to bribe them and they have to say, please take them back. Please take them back. And then some of these North African countries be like, no, fuck you. Uh, we won't take them back. Well, if someone tells us, you know, say, else Guatemala tells us, fuck you. We're like, <laughs> no more money for you. And America could just, and also we're just going to send, send them anyway. Cause like nobody tells America, fuck, go fuck yourself. Is that America does have that type of power and sovereignty to do this. And also we can do, you know, and there's no, you know, you do have like our court system, but our court system is generally much more in favor of strict immigration enforcement than, our our executive branch and the rest of the administrative state you know our you know generally you know there's some arguments over family separation but generally when it comes to deportation and other things courts generally approve it and when it ever reaches the supreme court you know with the conservative majority it has they're totally fine with deportation but with you know britain um they um they can't even deport these migrants. And it's a huge problem throughout Europe is that there will be some countries where it's only like 10% of migrants who have been given deportation orders have been actually deported, which in America, it, it's more that they're not issuing the deportation orders rather than they're just not getting deported. You know, it's that they're not issued deportation orders in, in, in the first place. But if they're ordered deported, we deport them. You know, no problem. It's the problem is, is keeping them out and actually deciding to deport them. While in Europe, they're like, please deport yourself. And they're like, no, I'm staying. And they're like, ah, well, I guess you're staying, you know, um, which I mean, there are a couple of cases in America where the sanctuary cities and others protect the migrants. But uh, it's more of just a lack of it's it's t done entirely for choice in, in America. And I, I want to say it is choice in Europe. Uh, especially with illegal immigration stuff, but it's, you know, they really don't have, these countries are not in control of themselves in the way that America is. And we can also say that there's like, you know, other elements that, uh, 
you could say in America that like actual American people are not in control of the government or our elected leaders are not in control, but somebody in our government is controlling these actions and they're, they don't have to go to an international body and worry about what they have to say and preventing them from doing any actions on immigration. It's, in, it's entirely by choice that these things are not implemented. Another example of this is Italy. A Maloney obviously campaigned on limiting immigration, and she has not been able to do that. She's actually invited to end guest workers. Now, that's choice. She could have not done that. But the thing that she has little choice or not as much power over is all these boat people coming over, which, once again, the EU is tying her hands. These courts are tying her hands. And she even her own government is tying her hands. They, they don't have the power to stop these boat people. If this was happening in America, we could uh, stop this easily. Just need more Border Patrol, more people to, you know, build the wall and faster deportation orders. And literally no one can tell us no to not do that. Well, in Italy, due to their diminished sovereignty, they're not they don't really have the power to do this as much. And I know there's all these international uh, bodies that can tell Maloney that like you can't stop them. And she's turning out she can't stop the boat people as much as she thought she could. It really has to be a unified EU response to this immigration problem for there to be the type of solution that they want uh, to occur to stop immigration. And so that that is like funny. I mean, Brexit was all done to regain their sovereignty and they still don't have sovereignty. <laughs> in fact, they're moving more to like being a colony of America in the UK anyway. Uh, so it's, um, it's a funny situation with Europe, but they are much more immigration is very important in America, but in throughout Europe, they are, this is the becoming the number one issue in these countries, and people are fed up, and they're directly confronted with it. And this is why, you know, Geert Wilders is winning in the Netherlands. And it's very odd that, you know, become, that he became, you know, his party, Party for Freedom, got the top spot. This wasn't expected by much of people. It was a big surprise. Uh, and there's always been, you know, a new nationalist party. There was uh, the Forum for Democracy, which was doing very well a couple of years ago. But then uh, some of the leadership been, had some squabbles. They went off in a different direction. So uh, Geert Wilders' party is back in action. Wilders' party has always been worse and much more cringe than the Party for Democracy. I remember even back in the days when... Um, you know, the old alt-right days when I was writing for Radix and stuff that we like were like ugh, party for party for freedom is just cringe, especially even compared to the other European parties. It's always been much more influenced by American Republican Party and then trying to emulate that example. Wilders has always been overwhelmingly pro-Israel and a in a way that's more in line with like Republican congressmen, even when European nationalist parties, and most of them are like technically pro-Israel, but they really just give blanket statements. It's just rhetorically, it's like, uh, sure, we support Israel. But while Wilders will be like, Israel is the greatest country on earth. They should, this should be Netherlands' greatest ally, just like it's America's greatest ally. Like he's really, um, loves Israel in a way. His politics, um, I probably wouldn't say this is as much bad as it now, but he was always like much more libertarian economically than the other European nationalist parties, which were much more centrist economically. Uh, he's it's just like his style and attitudes have just been much closer in line with mainstream conservatism, American conservatism than their other European 
nationalist parties. And this made a difference in the early 2010s, really throughout most of the 2010s, because European, our American conservatives would be hesitant to say anything nice about Le Pen, about the Austrian Freedom Party, about the Swedish Democrats, which the Swedish Democrats have gone much more moderate um, over time. They're probably even, you could even say the Swedish Democrats in a lot of ways are worse than the Party for Freedom now. But they were always hesitant to to, black, to say anything supportive of the other European nationalist parties because they had this far-right, neo-fascist taint, which they didn't want to have any association with. And there'd be a lot of mainstream conservatives who would criticize them. And this lasted even into the Trump years because Steve King got in trouble for meeting with Austrian Freedom Party members in 2018. And you have to wonder, it's like, why would that... Today, no one would give a shit if, if a Republican met with people like that. Um, but even in 2018, that was a big deal. And that was definitely a big deal in the early 2010s. But even in the Trump era's years, like meeting with Lega, Freedom Party, uh, even the AFD when they be started to become big. And that's still controversial to meet with AFD. I know there's uh, some AFD lawmaker who meets with Canadian conservatives and Canadians always flip out about that. But Party for Democracy, like Geert Wilders would be welcome at conservative events. I'm pretty sure he spoke at CPAC in the early 2010s. He's certainly giving a lot of speeches in America. I saw I saw him speak in, I think, 2011 when he was speaking out against a mosque being built in Middle Tennessee. And he was like the star attraction. And this was like a very mainstream conservative event. And they were having builders there, but they obviously would not invite someone like Le Pen. I don't, well, Le Pen didn't speak English, but that was it. And, but it was a huge event when Marion Marshall Le Pen, who now just goes by Marion Marshall because she has problems with her aunt, her niece spoke at CPAC 2018 and conservatives were furious. They're like, they're inviting neo-Nazis and anti-Semites there. We can't have this, but builders, you know, was speaking at the at the all these events and no one cared about filters because he was very much couching his rhetoric and his associations with mainstream American conservatism and even his like anti-Islam stuff sometimes it would sound like he was not opposed to immigration just Muslim immigration it was like solely focused on Islam in a way where European nationalist parties were like no we just don't want immigrants period while he would just say oh it's just Muslims which he's still very anti-immigration and most of their immigrants coming to Netherlands are Muslims, so it's still an anti-immigration position, but it was just more in keeping with what the conservative establishment in America was willing to tolerate. But a very different situation now. So Forum Democracy was much more in line with what I think the dissident right wants from a European Nationalist Party, but they've had their own problems and now Wilders is taking over, which is much more cringe and boomer. But whatever, it's still a good sign that that even despite all of Wilders' problems, it is still a good sign that Europeans are voting for him. It's showing that throughout the continent that Europeans are rising up and voting for a true political alternative that wants to restrict immigration and wants to restore sovereignty to these European countries. And so it is a positive sign that he's, you know, his party is getting the top vote despite all the issues. I mean, it's still like a positive thing that Maloney was able to take power. The issue there is that Maloney betrayed her voters. Uh, you know, it's still a good thing that that was the, you know, her promising immigration restriction and nationalism got into power. The, the issue there is that she failed to deliver. 
And this whole drive of the immigration being the number one issue is that unlike here in America where the Democratic Party, even though Biden knows that immigration is hurting him, he's just like continuing to allow in 200,000 illegals into the country every month. They're not going to do shit about illegal immigration. They don't care. The party thinks that Biden is being too hard on illegal immigrants. He's doing nothing to stop the tide in, uh, of immigration. But even in, in Europe, these left-wing governments want to do something about illegal immigration because they know this helps their opponents. They know that this helps the nationalist parties, and they're very much fearful of that. So they do try to become tougher on immigration. I mean, Olaf Scholz in Germany, very left-wing, has a left-wing coalition. They're trying to do more deportations. They're trying to close, seal, do more border security. Same what's going on with Macron in France and elsewhere. I mean, Maloney may be the only one not actually trying to do something. But throughout the con, and even, you know, Sunak in, in, in the UK is wanting to do something about immigration, but he <laughs> seems incapable of doing it. But he wants to sound like, at least sound like it, because he knows that that's what the people want. Very different situ- situation in America where Biden's like the border secure, no crisis. Uh, who cares about these illegal immigrants? And their voters are just like, woo, we want more illegal immigrants. Even though we now have a huge crisis in all these blue cities, these blue sanctuary cities, do solely the illegal immigrants, they're still bringing them in and not doing anything about it. They're just wanting to give more money to these cities or disperse these illegal immigrants throughout the country. They don't actually want to solve this problem whatsoever or allow these illegal immigrants to come here, find legal pathways to this country or give them work visas. That's their whole problem. It, that's, their, or that's their whole solution to the problem. It has nothing to do with enforcement or more deportations. So this issue is now dominating politics throughout Europe. Will it actually start to change Ireland? Will Ireland's nationalism you know, emerge from its anti-Anglo sentiment? Because a huge part of Irish identity, and this is not so much just criticism, this is just pointing out a fact, is dependent on this history with England and seeing England as the great other and defining themselves against the English. Is it, or is it going to be, I mean, they do have their own unique culture, but generally having an other that they're not generally influences a lot of people's tribal identity. It just happened throughout human history. Um, and that's definitely infected uh, a lot of the Irish. And so this idea that like Irish nationalism that is promoted by Sinn Féin and these left-wing parties is like everyone welcome but the English. And this is still very common in Scotland, which Scotland is not having any of the type of anti-immigration politics as found throughout Europe. You know, they also have a South Asian uh, prime minister, just like England and our UK, just like UK and Ireland. Uh, And that guy wants more immigration so they can, and he complains about how Scotland's too white. And so does Rocker complain that, uh, Ireland is too white and governed by too many white people, even though it's over 80% white. So will, will we see these parties actually do something about immigration? Uh, of the parties that actually exist and have parliamentary represent, representation, no. I mean, the fact is, is Fine Gael, uh, once again, hopefully we're not butchering the name too much. Fine Gael, I mean, their, their total solution for this is insane hate speech laws where you can even be prosecuted for just having hateful material or owning hateful material which could just be like a meme on your phone or something of that sort 
And it's going to be very dystopian type of legislation that is going to allow them to arrest everyone. So their total solution to this, and they have people openly saying this in their parliament, saying, yeah, we want to arrest people, is that uh, we need to restrict rights because hate is just not tolerated in Ireland. And while there is this huge segment of the population that is rising up against immigration, wants to put Irish first, they are not finding any political representation. Maybe this might develop the National Party. Maybe this might turn the National Party um, into getting, you know, more support. Or maybe there's a new party that's formed. Maybe, I don't know. I wouldn't probably trust, put my hope and trust in Conor McGregor to lead a political movement. It's like very good that he is speaking out against this. And I was actually impressed by the stuff he was saying. It was showing a level of... Um, of understanding and sophistication on the topic that I, and it was hard to refute if you're just an ordinary person of his arguments against immigration. But McGregor is like a, a wild man. You know, he's was just recently accused of rape, false, likely a false accusation, but it was like, just like him, um, you know, wanting to fuck some broad and he, you know, couldn't contain himself. And obviously the woman was upset. I don't think he texted her in the morning or something. And that was that. Uh, it was even like his uh, action, you know, he beat up the Miami Heat mascot, <laughs> sent the guy to a hospital, and it's like, uh, maybe you should contain yourself. I mean, the fact is, if McGregor was like the leader of your group, you know, there'd be, he'd be getting assault charges and stuff and <laughs> like that. Maybe that would be appealing to the Irish, but I probably would not put my uh, hopes on McGregor to build up your party. It would be he would be a valued asset to be a supporter of the party, but you need uh, organizers and others to be that. Maybe there's people out there who can do that in Ireland who are there to do that. But so you could have that uh, establishment, but of the parties that exist now, they're doubling down on their support for mass immigration, saying they're a na nation of immigrants and their total solution. And their only solution to this is more hate speech laws, which you really cannot discount how bad hate speech laws are for Europe. I think it's something that Americans don't take for uh, quite understand. And Americans always like say like, oh, well, we're now having hate speech laws that are, oh, our government is coming down on people. And they'll point to like really outrageous cases like uh, Ricky Vaughn and Doug Douglas Mackey, you know, saying like, this is now the case in America. But the thing to remember is that Mackey is one case. Very terrible case and something that's very disturbing that this could happen in America. But there is a Mackey in every young European country every week. There, I mean, you can go to the UK and just find stories of a guy said something racist on Facebook and he's arrested. There was a story of a guy who's claimed to have run a white supremacist website and he's just sentenced to five years in jail in the UK. And there's even cases in Europe. And you'll talk to any of the nationalist activists and leaders in Europe, and they are all dealing with hate speech litigation, you know, being sued over it or criminal cases where they could be put in jail over it. And it's a huge problem with it because they this costs them thousands and thousands of euros. I was about to say dollars, but thousands and thousands of euros and pounds it would be and the UK to deal with this stuff. And generally, most people see, have these beliefs with, you know, they agree with these, what these far right radicals are saying, but they understand the cost of what happens. And they know that they'll go to jail and that they'll be, you know, 
be buried under a mountain of litigation and lawsuits just for speaking out against immigration. And there's some like really ridiculous cases. There was this case in Europe where or in Poland where these members of European Parliament from the conservative party, the center right party, not even the nationalist party of confederacy or confederation, where these guys shared an anti-immigration video that was put out by their own party. And they are being prosecuted for hate speech in their own country. And Europe lifted their immunity from uh, so they could be prosecuted and investigated over this. This is their own country. And there's several other cases. And all these people get like sued and they can get arrested for hate speech. And in con- it says a lot for continental Europe that these parties are still going strong and are still gaining supporters despite the incredible obstacles and opposition towards them by the state and the laws that exist in their countries. Now, they're still gaining power even though they're getting sued and arrested over these matters. Um, some of them aren't getting as arrested as much, but they are getting investigated. A lot of times, I mean, like Marine Le Pen has been investigated and charged over hate speech and sued over this many, many times. So is Eric Zemmour um, in France. And, you know, they just assume it's a cost to doing things. But they carry on the fight and they and they still gain the support because the people generally agree with them. And it's really that the state has to use tyrannical powers just to keep it in check because the people, the vast majority of people, they do have the silent majority that is generally nationalist, that wants a far right, a right wing government in power that wants to you know, curb immigration entirely and restore sovereignty to these countries. It's just that the fact that the current rule regimes in these countries uh, oppress them and persecute them. But even with all this oppression and persecution, these people still have these strong beliefs. They are just silent about it. They truly have solid majorities. And I think this is even in the case in the UK, where I think a lot of far-right activism and organization and effective nationalist party is prevented. It's also nationalist party is prevented by how the elections work. They're very similar to how America, it's like you go up to, you know, you are running in a district. Whoever wins that district represents that district. Um, They have much more party discipline than America does. You know, if your party says you're voting for this, you generally have to vote for that. Otherwise, you could be removed as their um, the party could just say, you're not running for that district anymore. We're kicking you out, which they really can't do in America. Uh, America has very little. As you can see over the House Speaker fights, we have uh, very little party discipline, especially compared to Europe. But at the end, it's not proportional representation where in a lot of these countries, you know, people go up and, you know, they vote for whatever the party list and they vote for the party and whoever, you know, which and party is and parliamentary seats are assigned by which party won the um, uh, the percentage of the party winning in uh, national parliamentary elections. So that allows for a lot of these third party nationalist parties to do much better. So that really hurts um, a nationalist formation. But it's also just these hate speech laws. It really does curb the ability of the UK, really particularly England, to do these things. I would say that the English, the U, British government is much more cringe than probably 
the American Republican Party. I would not say American Democratic Party. But the politi- pol- political situation in, in the UK is probably, when it comes to elected leaders and stuff, is probably worse than, than America. But the people themselves, and this is different from Canadians, this is different from Scots, this is different from, well, I would have said it was different from the Kiwis the New, uh, and New Zealand and Australians, but uh, the Kiwis and Australians are rising up and becoming much more base. I mean, the Australians voted down this referendum to establish a indigenous body that could have veto power over what parliament did and the people voted no against that and now there's like a huge backlash against these land acknowledgements and this indigenous uh, advocacy and these aboriginal advocacy and immigration so that's a positive sign and there's even new zealand which was always very left-wing now parties that are promising immigration restriction are doing much better in elections they did very well in recent elections uh, but it really is. But Canada is just a lost cause all around. I mean, the Canadians generally believe the worst thing about. I mean, you, you do have Canadians who rise up like the trucker convoy, but uh, the average Canadian is like is is a, is a cuck. You know, it's why all these Canadians want to leave. Like the Canadians generally believe uh, the bullshit the regime says. At least the majority. I mean, even there was like a majority of Canadians who wanted the state to crack down hard on the trucker convoys and mass arrests and all this nonsense. Um, so you definitely have that uh, in Canada, but and you certainly have that within Scotland as well. But within England, the people generally want a more nationalist government. The silent majority generally wants that, but hate speech laws prevent that from arising and prevent them from being able to advocate for their own side and, and argue for the positions they want. I just look at Tommy Robinson. I know a lot of people will find him very cringe. I do find it a little bit cringe now how like overzealously Zionist he is. But I think it's just that these people are the only ones who are giving him money and backing him. That that's why he does this. But this guy gets arrested all the time. And he's like had his bank account. You know, he's been banned from bank accounts. I mean, there's been people like that who've happened in America. But he's been, he literally is arrested anytime he's in public. He's, you know, been attacked many times on the street. You know, he really does suffer for being a political dissident. And he got arrested for just showing up at a protest to support the Jews in Israel. And police still arrested him. And that's just because they're just like, we don't want, even with like how cringe Robinson is and some of his politics, they don't even want something. They want to. They want to nix that in the butt. They want to. They want to ensure that there's no one like Robinson, or even remotely like these European populist nationalists, to get anywhere in the UK. And that really does stifle the movement in England to do anything about these issues, is due to these hate speech laws and this persecution. And America really is gifted with hate, free speech laws. I would say this: if we had hate speech laws like Europe. The right wing would die here. First off, uh, we are not backed by a silent majority. We are backed by a vocal minority, a strong minority. But the silent majority in America is, you know, extremely anti-racist. I was hearing people were telling me these stories about people going to rural dive bars and being surrounded by people who would have otherwise voted for Trump. And they made some 
mildly racial remarks and these old boomers were trying to fight them and attack them for being racist and this is like the heartland this is not like urban urbanite bugman territory this is like america and you know the people generally uh, you know there's a lot of i think if you go up to even to the average hardcore conservative they'll say like well i lock these immigrants they're so nice i mean the story i always use i've said this in podcasts at the time, but Troy Nels, who's one of the strongest conservatives in Congress, he's a huge Trump supporter, generally reliant to vote for all right-wing legislation. And he one time gave a speech about how much he loves his Pakistani doctor. I forget his Indian or Pakistani doctor. And he's like, we love these immigrants. We love these immigrant doctors. I love them. They're so great. And this is like our hard right lawmakers who are saying this, which you know, National Rally and Freedom Party guys in Austria would not be saying this shit. And generally, if they said that to their crowd, their crowd would be livid that they're saying this shit because they're like, no, we don't approve of this at all. And it's even like our uh, our white nationalist movement of how many people in the white nationalist movement have non-white wives and stuff um, or non-white themselves, which... Um, is a, is a funny factor. But I think if we did have hate speech laws, like right-wing politics would just end in America because there's not a silent majority that would be on our side. And if there were like greater repercussions, and there's already a lot of repercussions on our side. I mean, you can lose your job. you can They can harass you. Your social reputation is permanently ruined. But if they added that, you know, they're arresting people over Facebook posts every week, right-wing politics would just end in america so we are very we are uh, very privileged to have our free speech laws and we should really need to protect them that's always when i get people are like well the left is already uh, not respecting our free speech laws so we need to throw out the first amendment so we can punish our enemies and it's like we don't have the power to do to punish our enemies in the way the left does and so if we eliminate the first amendment they would just be arresting us all, all they want. If we had hate speech laws, it would be it would be an end to our politics. And some people are like, well, we now can use state power against ourselves. Based, I, I guess. But no, that's why it's so important. It's so critical to it. Which is why I've always been you know, saying with all the Israel-Palestinian conflict is that no censorship is probably the core thing we need to be working on. I'm not as worried as much now about american involvement in the war i am worried about the immigration front but you know the entire republican party is opposed to taking in gaza refugees but censorship a lot of the republican party is wanting to have greater censorship and starting to oppose hate speech laws and that is bad if we did have hate speech laws right-wing politics would be effectively nullified and in this country I mean, we just look at the UK. It 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 would be like that. Anyone who advocates for these issues would be arrested, getting arrested all the time, and that would you know send a clear message to Americans that you shouldn't talk about these issues. You should just focus on the football game. And if you want to get into any hate speech, talk about how much you hate Eagles fans or something like that. So free speech allows us to promote our ideas to people who would have otherwise never heard these ideas or would have never been receptive to them. But the more they hear about them, due to this great privilege we have, we are able to have an effective right-wing politics and are able to red pill much more people than we would have otherwise 
uh, do in a much more restrictive society. And so, yeah, we do have people, you know, there is being, you know, free speech is being cheaped out in America, but it's much more secure and much more protected in America than it is in Europe. And that's something we should be grateful for. It's one of the it's one of the few good, uh, you know, compared to American Europeans, America and European situation. It is something that we benefit greatly from. I have heard there was these arguments that some of the British right wingers were making uh, in the 2010s, 2000s. I think this was being done when the British National Party was actually winning seats. And they were saying that hate speech laws are actually a gift because it allows them to restrict the black bad optics people and it makes them, you know, stay within the good optics line. But now with all the persecution of Tommy Robinson and like the cringe stuff he says and uh, how they've really expanded how them going after Facebook posts of just like people not even involved in politics, but they'll just say a comment about Muslims. I actually think that was not a correct point because... Well, the UK still has bad optics people, <laughs> no matter what. Uh, just the fact is that they're like sent to jail for 10 years just for posting stuff that would be normal in America. But it actually just limits the ability to have even a solid nationalist party uh, along the lines of like the Freedom Party in Austria in the UK. And, you know, if people, if we had that in America, it, it would not it wouldn't just limit the bad optics people it would limit the entire right wing itself so i just think it, that was kind of a cope argument made for a particular time period when the british national party was like you know ensuring that people weren't doing neo-nazi stuff and you know throwing up romans and you know displaying bad optics is able to control them and they were able in the confines but even today you know bmp probably couldn't be allowed to exist due to the government's greater enforcement of these laws. And so it's no longer even about ensuring people don't indulge in bad optics. It's just about ensuring that nobody adult is able to advance nationalism in a proper course. So to answer the question, is nationalism more prevalent in Europe than America? Uh, yes, that's not saying it's non-existent in America, but I think a lot of our issues, the identity issues, come to the fore in Europe more than America because one, there's a greater proximity to these issues than in America. I mean, most of our voters live in rural areas where some of them are getting refugee resettlement, um, but they're also not experiencing blacks in the same way that urban areas are. It's really like light white libtards who are experiencing uh, the worst uh, magical behavior. So they're not as quite as exposed to these issues as people else as people in urban areas we don't really have that urban working class anymore that is serving as a now a huge part of what of the growing nationalist coalition throughout europe and is what we're seeing in ireland that's another thing you're just not going to see riots it's like you know rural areas are not going to destroy their their dairy queen over um you know something that's happening in new york city you know, that's just not going to happen. And you do see these strong protests in New York City over migrants where in the few Republican areas, you know, Staten Island and, you know, stuff that's going on in Long Island and outside of in the immediate areas outside of New York. But, you know, those those people are um, not the majority. Those people are a minority, but a very strong minority. And some of these people and some of them are taking the protests and demonstration. But the majority of our people are in the rural rural areas, suburbs, and people are just not going to destroy their 
<laughs> you know, their local Whole Foods over uh, so, or Publix over something that's happening in Chicago. That's just what the way it is going to happen. And generally, they're not experiencing that crime as much. They're still turning. I mean, the fact is, is that Trump is still going to be the Republican nominee. And he's a nationalist. He's America firster. And that's still going to be the candidate for those people. Is a big deal, but there's not as many Trump-like people as we'd want within the Republican Party. It's still developing, but it's not a truly nationalist party in the mold of some of these Euro factions. And the other big difference is, is that there's a greater sense of ethnic identity among these Europeans. Even among liberal Germans and Frenchmen, they would still have an idea of being French that's tied to ethnicity and race. Even while in America, as I say with the Troy Nels situation, but even with a lot of these hard right conservatives, who many of them even will oppose immigration, they will still believe that, you know, an Indian or a Guatemalan or somebody else is just as American as they are. Because there's this fervent belief, even among a lot of middle Americans, that being an American is just a political identity. It has nothing to do with race or ethnicity. It's just about, you know, there is a cultural element because you have to speak English. But it's uh, anyone could be an American is something that they proudly cling to. Now, sometimes this still means that they're very solid on crime, very solid on uh, anti-white racism, very solid on a lot of the issues, on a lot of the identity issues. But, you know, they are limited because they generally believe in this universal concept of Americanism. And they cling to it, especially among the boomers and Gen Xers. And that defines a lot of our hard right constituency. Meanwhile, uh, even liberal Germans will say, you know, something like a Croat can never be a German. (laughs) And this is not even like um, somebody who's non-white. This is somebody who's, uh, you know, just a Slav. And they're like, these people can never be German. And even you can even meet a lot of these European right-wingers. And they will look down on people marrying someone of a different nationality. I know some people who've married like Americans, whites, and everyone among their circle makes fun of them for marrying outside their group. You know, and there will even be stories about saying like, oh, I have like liberal members of of my family and someone in that family married a Czech. And this is like Austrians or Germans. And pretty much the entire family frowned upon that and looked down upon that as just marrying a Czech. Well, meanwhile, in America, you can be from a hard right family and you're like, I'm bringing home uh, Maria. And then they're like, oh, this is so based. You brought home a a mestizo. (laughs) And like the family won't even bat an eye uh, at that, even no matter how hard right they are. So that's like there is a greater sense of ethnic tribalism and identity within the Europeans, which allows for the type of nationalist politics we have. I don't see it's like completely hopeless in America. You just have to work with what you have and you have to push them in the right direction, which goes back to my idea that of personal identitarianism versus ideological identitarianism, where there's a greater degree of ideological identitarianism in America than in any time in my lifetime and in any time since probably the 60s. At, at the same time, the personal identitarianism is at the lowest it's ever been in American history. Um, and that's and that's something to keep in mind. While meanwhile in Europe they still have their tribalism and their sense of ethnic identity. Obviously, it's in decline in some areas, uh, but it's still shared by the majority of the people, and that 
makes them more willing to support right-wing nationalism than I think even a lot of Americans are. And this is, and I'm just even talking about Republicans here. Uh, among Democrats, there's like <laughs> there's zero conception of a racial or ethnic nationalism among them. Uh, even in the privacy, you know, they would never admit to something like that. Well, with Republicans, he, uh, it's tough even to get them on the same wavelength as the dissident right. So it's just that we have a lot more work to do. Uh, but the core concept we need to keep in mind is that we protect free speech and oppose all forms of censorship because if we did eliminate free speech here in America, unlike in Europe, it would end right-wing politics overnight. So we really have to protect it. It is really one of the great privileges we have as Americans, and we must do everything in our power to preserve it and protect it. And so those are my thoughts on Ireland and Europe. So I have one other comic leak question that's sort of that's sort of aligned, sort of dovetails with what we were talking about before because it is about this opposition towards immigrants when they come in contact with you and this comes from new england refugee once again he's not getting the final question but this seems to be a story that we need to talk on he sends a new story about how you know local residents uh black residents in new york and and the new migrants are fighting over food resources in queens and he says it seems that the magic inhabiting this part of queens are mad that they can't wake up before the illegals, therefore they missed out on their goodie bags. What is your reaction to the story? And this is being found also most uh, most notably in Chicago is that blacks are now interacting with migrants and they're strongly opposing this because they're taking their resources away that they feel should be for them. And all these um, town halls that are happening in Chicago situate on this issue. It's always blacks like, yo, they be taking our stuff. We don't want them. They, get these migrants out of here. Build the wall. And then, like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then they do that, but they... Um, at the same time, you know, there's been some Republicans who've been trying to build on that. Like Vivek went to Southside Chicago to see, like, if they'd be open to immigration restrictions. They're like, ah, nah, we just want reparations. <laughs> they just want more stuff. Um, so they're not really willing to join the right-wing coalition. Uh, much to the disappointment of a lot of Republicans and conservatives. But here, yeah, no, it's it's obviously competition of resources. Is that these blacks, most of them are not voting. Well, <laughs> Not directly voting. I mean, the great thing about ballot harvesting is that a lot of them can sign their name and, and they vote. But, you know, they're not going to turn to right-wing coalition. It's just it's more just a humorous thing that we're seeing that these battles between blacks and Hispanics are. Well, a lot of these migrants are just Africans and um, some of them are even Asian. So, But the migrants versus blacks issue is something. But it's not really something we can exploit because one black votes are already locked in for democrats you know people always want to talk about the rigged elections and ballot harvesting it's like who do you think they're harvesting you know white white liberals in, in the suburbs no they're harvesting the black vote they're never it's never going to go to republican because that's how their votes are already locked in they're already cast and you can find this there's a ton of videos where they interview you know urban ghetto black males and they're like yo i love trump man he my man i like what he's saying and it's like if this guy is even, you know, able to have a have a ballot, his ballot's already being cast for Biden and the Democrats. He's not he doesn't even have a real vote. And otherwise he might have a felony, so he's not even able to vote. So it doesn't matter if they're saying nice things, it's like 
90% of that vote is already going to Democrats, and there's nothing really Republicans can do about it. But it is just interesting what happens with the migrant issue, and it does create headaches for city politics because these city leaders are more bound to obligations with the black community than they are to migrants, and the black community is turning on them, on the migrants, so they have to respond to this, and they want to keep out these migrants because of what the black community is saying. And New York, it's not just the black community because it's, it's a lot of these eth white ethnic communities and even some of the whites, like white libtards in general, are just tired of the uh, homeless and crime problem coming from the migrants. So it is a, just a funny thing, but it's not something you can politically exploit to try to get more of the black vote. So moving along to other questions, we've got one for Mystery. He says, hey, Scott, Sopranos, Keat or Cringe? I would say Keat. It's a, you know, people like might be... Uh, too normie or basic but you know sopranos is a really good show i think everyone should watch it you can have right-wing interpretations from the show as well uh it's it really is you know it's not it is uh, a very basic opinion but yes the sopranos is probably the best t tv show ever made there are some weak seasons that have happened definitely later on uh the first half of the sixth season is terrible and uh, but the first four seasons are all really good so yes i sopranos i would say are keyed not very cringe um can't really make great tv shows like that anymore but i would say yes i would be mostly pro it um, so yeah if you haven't watched it definitely watch it i think most of us have because it's so it's so influences meme culture that people have to watch it to understand these memes that people pass around. So yeah, that's for mystery. And then the next question, it's from K Max. We'll go to a second question for this week. He says, Scott, in regards to Elon Musk pushing some of his shoes, is there a Paul Nalen fear? Paul Nalen famously overdosed on red pills and went all off the deep end. He ran against Paul Ryan on cinema and just went off with the deep end with conspiracies, didn't he? And now nobody ever hears from him. Your view on how Elon can keep pushing, but maybe keep the temperature at medium. Uh, we do not need to, or we do not want him to lose all credibility like Nayland did. <laughs> how would you advise Elon going forward? I think Elon knows what he's doing. He will not be Paul Nayland. Paul Nayland was just a random guy running for Congress who <clears throat> uh, then went off the deep end and was, um, I remember before he got, I mean, he got banned from Gab. Like, that's like the funniest thing. It's like, imagine running uh, a congressional campaign and you're banned from Gab. He's banned from Gab for doxing Ricky Vaughn. And he's testified against, uh, he testified against Ricky Vaughn actually in his trial, showing how uh, low of a character he is. He also, I think he testified against um, Chris Cantwell too. But I think that might have been, I forget if him and Chris Cantwell were enemies. Um... I think they were because I think Paul Nalen was in a meme group that was all making fun of Chris Cantwell uh, for not being extreme enough, I think, <clears throat> which just shows like his later trajectory. And then he, um, uh, Cantwell threatened to dox and then uh, rape and kill one of these guys, a wife and kids who was in this group that was making fun of him and stuff. And uh, yeah, he just went, uh, went crazy. But Nalen was... You know, he, uh, that's not going to be a fear of Elon Musk is the most, is the wealthiest person in the world. He is not going to end up like Paul Nalen. And due to the fact that he has so much wealth and power, people are willing to overlook and 
accept some of his extra eccentricities. And I don't think he's going to go full all the way in with nailing. I think Elon Musk likes kind of stirring up controversy and creating discussions. And sometimes he doesn't realize all the things that he's agreeing with in a way. Um, but I think Elon should keep doing what Elon does. I like uh, I like the conversations he's promoting. I think it's very good for us that we have someone like that who's pushing at these angles and topics that no one in the past would have, and he's just going right at it. Uh, just maybe be a little bit wiser in how he goes about it, but overall, I think it's uh, I think it's very good. So that is my question or my answer for that and next up we have tom this is a simple one it's like what are your thoughts on d toten hosen i know they are cringing for boomers but i like some of their songs uh, i don't like them at all d hosen is like a pop punk band or punk rock band from germany all their lyrics are in german i only primarily know them because my german teacher in high school would always be like oh here's some german music and it's d toten hosen and uh no it's not very good I don't really like it. There's some stuff, you know, stuff that was popular in Germany, like mostly the synth pop and um, more industrial stuff, like stuff like Wolfsheim and uh, Camouflage, which actually had, they all sung in English. But that's the stuff I more like than um, Die Totenhosen, the rock stuff. Most of the German kind of pop rock and mainstream rock is really bad. <laughs> so I'm not not that much of a fan of it. So we have that. So we have that answer. We've got a we've got a couple more. So bear in mind. Next up, we have Fake Cell Eradicator, and as he's saying, what is the 187 IQ on current federal holidays? Obviously, MLK Day and Juneteenth have to go. What would you replace them with? Do you agree with the common refrain that we would be happier if we had the dozens of religious holidays and feasts that the common folk of medieval Europe enjoyed? Or would our shithole culture turn every single one of them into a NFL doubleheader with a little Uzi Vert and Sexy Red halftime show? Amazon Prime plus Uber Eats oop, promo code and a DraftKings fan duel plus local lead dispensary OG Kush buy one get one free. It would most likely be the latter. If we added more holidays, it would be the the Monday after Super Bowl and Halloween. Those would be the two, which I, I don't know, maybe Halloween, having Halloween as a holiday wouldn't be that bad. But those would be the two holidays that would, most people would accept. Or just drinking holidays, like St. Patrick's Day would become a holiday, and then Cinco de Mayo. It may just be the days after, because then people would want to uh, recuperate from St. Patrick's Day and Cinco de Mayo. But those would be the holidays that it, it would be all tied to drinking and, and, and that, which a lot of the old feasts and holidays of the medieval times were just about getting plastered and going crazy. So maybe that's in keeping with traditions. But now if we, we the main reason we can't have any religious and holidays and feasts is one, our government already does a horrible job. And we, you know, when they added Juneteenth, they're like, we can't really afford another holiday. And they'd made one anyway. And really what it's come to replace is that some cities have decided that they're not celebrating Columbus Day or Veterans Day or maybe even um, cutting back on the July 4th festivities because of Juneteenth. And that's one of the things to uh, keep in mind that we've had with this country is that now all, we have too many holidays. Um, I would say if we we should cut back on the federal holidays, maybe we have... Um, 
Maybe instead of MLK Day and Juneteenth, we have a Halloween holiday. I don't think that would go well with some of the evangelicals, but there's some other holidays we could have. Uh, definitely would oppose St. Patrick's Day. We already have enough Irish identity in this country. Uh, definitely opposed to a Cinco de Mayo. But Halloween, I think, would be fine if we had. But if we got rid of MLK Day and Juneteenth, and there's some other days in January, you know, maybe we could have Robert E. Lee Day instead of MLK Day to replace in, in January for that. So there's other some holidays, but if we ever did add more holidays to our country, it would be like what you said, and it'd be all about um, giving a day off after the Super Bowl, and it would just be all very cringe, and and it's like even like how we celebrate St. Patrick's Day, it is really disgusting. It's like, <laughs> it's not even about an Irish pride, it's just about how like dressing up in horrible green outfits and getting wasted in the middle of March, and it's the same with like Cinco de Mayo. You know, instead they're drinking tequila on Cinco de Mayo and they're drinking Guinness on St. Patrick's Day and, and Irish whiskey. So no, um, uh, holidays, yeah, I'm not, we, we have enough already. We don't need any more uh, current federal holidays. And our country really can't afford to have more federal holidays. If we added one more, like, <laughs> like I think our country would lose its mind. And if it ever was a holiday, it'd most likely be one of those four outlined the Monday after Super Bowl, St. Patrick's Day, Cinco de Mayo, or Halloween. So that is my view on that. And I think this is the last question we have. Hopefully, let me check. Let me uh, let me double check to make sure this is the last one we have. And yes, it is. It is from Dollar Bill. He asks, alas, the progress flag has become omnipresent in American life. From corporate advertising to craft beer bars to independent bookstores to mainline Protestant churches to kindergarten classrooms, there is no escaping the sight of this incredibly ugly banner. Do you think the ruling Biden regime could move to own the chuds by officially, officially incorporating it into the symbols of the American government? They already do this to an extent by flying it outside of U.S. embassies, but they could perhaps take a step further and have that progress flag made a mandatory arm patch in the uniforms of the armed services or maybe change the great seal of the United States so the eagle is clutching a progress flag instead of the arrows or olive branch. In my more black-pilled moments, I think the Democrats could easily pull this off with a GOP too cowardly buck-broken to oppose this measure and the American public responding with a collective shrug. I don't think they would do that. They're, the way it's already become an unofficial symbol is enough for them. I don't think they want to make it an official symbol. It would be a little bit too much, and it would also jeopardize a lot of our alliances we have with the rest of the world, that uh, our relations with the rest of the world that is obviously very opposed to the progress flag. The Middle East would revolt uh, over that. There's just no reason to do that because they already have as an unofficial symbol and doing it as an unofficial as an official symbol would be just a greater escalation for them. And there's no one quite demanding it become an official symbol. So I, I think if they wanted to do this, if there was a great demand for this, they probably could pull it off. But the fortunate thing is there's not a great demand to do this. And I don't think Democrats do think that that's a little too far. Now, 10 years from now, will they think it's a little bit too far? We'll have to see that moment when we get there. But they're not going to change the Great Seal. They're not going to require it being flung, flown outside of every embassy and right below the American flag. But 
Probably the worst thing is they don't need to because culturally people want to fly it and people like have this insane respect for it. There was a dial down from years past the Pride Month due to a lot of the Bud Light backlash, which I guess is, you know, is a positive thing. It didn't entirely end Pride Month. It just returned Pride Month to pre-2020 era uh, of it where it's not quite... Um, a, that's another thing with the federal holidays. If we actually did have a federal holiday, they would have like a gay pride day in June. And uh, we would obviously not want that. But that would be time for the holidays we would have. But you, you did see a paring down of that because they realized, well, as more corporations did, because the corporations did see what was happening by light. They did see what was happening Target. And they're like, okay, we're going to have just a, a mild level of LGBT pride this month. And rather than the over-the-top stuff we were doing in 2022 or the over-the-top stuff we had planned because they didn't want to be the next Bud Light. So I think with that example, uh, maybe that is uh, one of the lasting legacies of the Bud Light boycott is that, the con is that conservatives don't want to, or not conservatives, but the American government doesn't want to make it an official emblem. But they really don't. But it, that's like probably the worst aspect is that culturally... It's appropriate, it's acceptable, and the American people shrug, have a collective shrug when it becomes an official emblem of the United States government for a month. But outside of that, you know, they don't, they're not going to mandate it outside of what they already do for Pride Month and elsewhere. So I guess that's a bit of a white pill uh, <laughs> to say. I mean, they already are able to get away with it, but. You know, maybe there will be a, a progress flag boycott next year to succeed the Bud Light boycott. I doubt it. Uh, but, there, you know, there's weird things that could happen. But carrying forward, they don't have a need to make an official emblem. It's already the unofficial symbol of the globalist American empire. And so they don't need to really make it a, make it more controversial by making it official or alienate our foreign allies by our foreign governments we work with and have to have decent relations by putting as a patch on our on our soldiers uniforms and they also don't really they know that they know that I would humiliate soldiers a little bit too much i mean it's why nhl is no longer doing these over the top pride nights and requiring players to display pride stuff because they know the players are getting pissed off about it they felt it was a humiliation for them and they you know said that they didn't want to do that and it's also a thing that they don't make NFL players do it. They don't make NBA players do it because they know all these blacks would be like, hell no, nah, I ain't wearing this pride. I ain't wearing this gay shit. And they would have uh, a very awkward uh, situation if that occurred. So there, so there is some paring down of it. Um, and that's a bit of a white pill. But the overall, I guess, black pill would be we already have a collective shrug when they fly it from our embassies. And it just is what it is. So... That is it for Highly Respected today. We're going to have more great content later on this week, so be on the lookout for that. So until next time, stay respected.